In the uh, readings, we've come to the last section of uh, my bit of the book. Uh, this is chapter 12, Knowing Radi Emptiness and the Radiant Mind. So we just come to uh, radiance. But before we start on that, I thought I would just read one, uh, one short sutta. This was, um, I think there was a question yesterday or the day before about um, when we're talking about uh, awareness and such, that uh, it, uh, could this be called uh, Buddha nature? And uh, a significant sutta that um, uh, is in the Sanyutta Nikaya, the uh, Connected Discourses, in uh, section 55, uh, it talks about the nature of the enlightened mind and how the... Um, well, the uh, as you'll you'll hear when I read it, that the uh, when the the mind is is liberated, so we would use the word arahant to refer to the Buddha or any enlightened being. But the Buddha makes a very particular, particularly pertinent comment here. So the the scenario is um, that uh, Mahanama, who is uh, the ruler of the Sakyans, has um, <clears throat> gone to the Buddha and is asking the Buddha's advice about what sort of uh, uh, encouragement or instruction should one give if you're with somebody who's dying um, what's the best thing to, to say or how to relate to them <clears throat> so that uh, Mahanama he's also the Buddha, uh, a cousin of the Buddha so he's come to the Buddha and he's said you know if someone's dying what's the best kind of advice to, to give to them and then the, uh, the Buddha responds to him saying a wise lay follower Mahanama who is sick, afflicted and gravely ill should be consoled by another wise lay follower with four consolations. So the word consolation is something that makes you feel a bit better. Like if you didn't get the first prize, you get a consolation prize. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it means. So, <clears throat> so to be consoled or um, to be comforted. So with the four consolations, let the venerable one be consoled. You have confirmed confidence in the Buddha thus. The blessed one is the teacher of devas and humans, the enlightened one, the blessed one. You have confirmed confidence in the Dhamma, in the Sangha. You have the virtues dear to the noble ones, unbroken, leading to concentration. After a wise lay follower, who is sick, afflicted and gravely ill, has been consoled by a wise lay follower with these four consolations, he should be asked, Are you anxious about your mother and father? If he says, I am, he should be told, But good sir, you are subject to death. Whether you are anxious about your mother and father or not, you will die anyway. <laughs> it's a kind of Buddhist consolation. <laughs> like, uh, bare knuckle consolation. <clears throat> You're going to die anyway. So please abandon your anxiety over your mother and father. And then he goes into a long sequence. Um, also to abandon anxiety over your wife and family and um, uh, property and so forth. And then uh, withdrawing attention from sensuality then also um, the, uh, goes through the different he uh, heavenly realms, the different uh, ascending heavenly realms. So this is, well, um, um, if you're letting go of attachment to your family and your children, your business, your property, um, then... <clears throat> then you might think, oh, I want to fix my mind on being reborn in the, um, the heaven of the four great kinks, the Chattu Maharaja, and then to consider, well, why bother 
being reborn in the heaven of the four kings because you could, you could, if you chose, be reborn in the heaven of the, the 33 gods. And then the Tusita heaven, the, um, the, uh, all the, through the, the um, different heavens of the Karmaloka up into the, through the Brahma realms. And then uh, finally, oh, it's, a, it's a long, long sequence in the, the original sutta. And then, <clears throat> then finally, the Buddha says the um, uh, uh, saying, "Well, why you know why be uh, uh, why if you are only considering being reborn in the highest Brahma realm?" He says, "My mind has been withdrawn from the Brahma world. I have directed my mind to the cessation of identity." So the Buddha says, uh, rather than even intending to be reborn in the highest of the Brahma realms. Why not? Uh, it's, it's more helpful to fix the mind on what's called sakaya niroda, or the, the cessation of identity. Uh, uh, so I've directed my mind to the cessation of identity. Then, Mahanama, I say, there is no difference between a lay follower who is liberated in mind and a bhikkhu who has been liberated in mind for a hundred years. That is, between one liberation and the other. That's the, the point of this reading. So that he's saying that if uh, as, uh, a lay person who is... Um, uh, realizes that cessation of identity, that liberation from, from identity on their deathbed, there's no difference between their mind uh, of someone who's been an arahant for a hundred years. But, uh, it's the same, uh, it's the same uh, degree of liberation, the same kind of uh, purity. So that uh, <coughs> it's one of the very few places that the Buddha makes this, this kind of a comment, and also even talking about a lay person being enlightened. <laughs> might be comforting, consoling to the lay community <laughs> that it is considered possible. You do, it's a deathbed experience, but <laughs> it does manage to squeak in there. But the point being, that, that's really interesting, is saying that someone who's been an arahant for a hundred years and a lay person who's uh, uh, realizing enlightenment on their deathbed, there's no difference. It's that the mind is identical. The nature of mind is identical. And so that's a very significant teaching, I think. Could you explain uh, why I'm basically I, I know why but it's very hard for me to explain it so I would like to hear it uh, from uh, explain again um, why a lay person who's not on their deathbed cannot reach for uh, enlightenment well, what would be your explanation? I'd like to hear that first. Um, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's when when you live as a lay person, just by uh, how to say that, but just by the needs of, of sustaining your life, you need a certain amount of self-identification and. Uh, in that sense, the, the way the Sangha is set up is, is a way to uh, free ourselves from these concerns. You know, on where do I get the food on and what about the taxes and so on. Um, yeah, that would be my little stumble answer. Uh, yeah, mine would be pretty much the same. I feel it's been formalized over the centuries, I sort of tidied up so that I suspect there was a few more instances where lay people did become arahants. Um, but by uh, over the centuries, it sort of got 
tweaked so that any person who was not a, a monastic disciple of the Buddha who did become enlightened, they immediately requested ordination. You know, or, and then the mythology arose that they would die within seven days if they didn't uh, they didn't take ordination. That's not in the canon, and I feel that that it's sort of it's been sort of tweaked and tidied and made, and in a sense to sort of hold up the monastic order and to uh, put the lay community into a bit of a uh, diminutive position, a kind of lower position. Um, but uh, <clears throat> I, I feel it's exactly the same kind of principle that is considered. You know, you have to, as a lay person, you have to be. Um, Looking after your property, if you, even if you have very, very simple needs, you know you have to have some some kind of livelihood, some way of of acquiring food each day and such like. And uh, and also it became standard. Always, what what you find is that where you do find very um, modest and and um, dedicated uh, practitioners who are lay people, that they they are quite commonly they'll reach the level of anagami of non-returner. So you'll have a Gatikara the potter in uh, the Gatikara Sutta in the Middle Length Discourses. So that's um, in a, the uh, the um, uh, the the way of life. Gatikara is a, uh, a a potter. His parents are old; they're blind. So he really would like to be a, a, a sort of full-time yogi, but he he can't because he's got to sustain his parents uh, and look after them because they're blind and old and, and uh, they need support. So he makes pots. He's a potter, and then, but he doesn't sell them. He just sort of puts them out. And if anyone wants to give him some cash, then they can. But if they just want to take them for whatever reason, then they can too. He doesn't sort of market them. He just sort of makes them available, and then lives on whatever people give him. So there's this kind of freewheeling uh, style uh, that, that's there. But um, uh, it's a. Um, uh, I feel it's it's the. Uh, the kind of worldly concerns that uh, and uh, the the need to look after a livelihood take responsibility for for family members and, and that that's um the the reason uh, um, but i do I, I would underscore that uh, i don't have fixed or immutable or kind of in, in, irrefutable evidence but my feeling is that things have been tweaked over the centuries so that you you don't get any Lay people who who become arahants and choose to carry on living as lay people it just doesn't happen in the Pali canon. You do in the northern tradition. You have quite you know, a number, um, and uh, <clears throat> so it's it's much more like you know Vimalakirti or Layman Pang and so forth. They have a whole kind of mythology of that. But in the and it might have been that the more that sort of grew up in the Mahayana texts, then the more they chopped it out of the Theravada. Say <laughs> we're not like that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't I can't say, but. That, you know, I've got a, I've got an editor's eye now. After thirty years of writing books, you can, you can see where stuff's been taken out. <laughs> that, wait, 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 wait. You can't see the mark of the red pen, but you've got this feeling like something's been chopped there. You know, well that that's been pasted in, like that. and uh, <clears throat> so that you know, uh, there's a sense that things have been um, kind of uh, standardized. But anyway, that this is one instance where it's uh, it's talked about that uh, a lay person is which is full enlightenment, and also, but the main point being that the state of mind is uh, is identical to someone who's been an arahant for a hundred years. Look at your natural spike, which he says there, you don't have to become it. 
start recognize that that you haven't become it. You can't become enlightened. Those Shinya uh, Suzuki said that. You can't become enlightened. Thank you for sharing. So going on to radiance, that also that does actually match the very last passage of this chapter from Ajahn Chah, but I'll get onto that when we get there. So this is uh, the section called Radiance. Finally, in this chapter, we will take a brief look at the quality of radiance. And the first uh, quote is from the Book of the Fours in the Anguttara Nikaya. Bhikkhus, there are these four radiances. What are the four? The radiance of the moon, the radiance of the sun, the radiance of fire, the radiance of wisdom. Panya Pabha in Pali. Because among these four, the radiance of wisdom is indeed the most excellent. And then from the book, uh, uh, the first um, book of the Sangyutta Nikaya, the Deva Sangyutta, uh, wisdom is the source of light in the world. Along with the anidasana vijnana, the um, non-manifestative consciousness, those, um, uh, if you remember that phrase that uh, is often uh, quoted as part of those teachings, vijnanang anidasana, anantang sabatopabang, the consciousness which is non-manifest, which is invisible, uh, limitless and radiant in all directions, or accessible from every side. Along with the anidasana vijnana teachings, already quoted, many of the Thai forest masters also regularly refer to the, quote, Pabhasara Jitta, unquote, mentioned in a pair of suttas in the Anguttara Nikaya. So these are in the Book of the Ones, sutta number 61 and 62. So these have been sort of put together for this quotation. Because this mind is radiant, but it doesn't show its radiance because passing defilements come and obscure it. And the Pali for that is, Pabhasara Midang Bikkhoe Chittang, the unwise ordinary person does not understand this as it is. Therefore, there is no mind development in the unwise ordinary person. Because this mind is radiant. It shows its radiance when it is unobscured by passing defilements. The wise noble disciple understands this as it is. Therefore, there is mind development in the wise noble disciple. So this, uh, these are very short. This is kind of basically that's the whole of the sutta. There's, there's two, there's two suttas. Very short, but that's a very, very much quoted uh, teaching in the Thai forest tradition. Here is uh, words of a venerable Achan Man uh, from his little book called A Heart Released. The mind is something more radiant than anything else can be, but because counterfeits, passing defilements come and obscure it, it loses its radiance like the sun when obscured by clouds. Don't go thinking that the sun goes after the clouds. Instead, the clouds come drifting along and obscure the sun. So meditators, when they know in this manner, should do away with these counterfeits by analyzing them shrewdly. When they develop the mind to the stage of the primal mind, this will mean that all counterfeits are destroyed, or rather, counterfeit things won't be able to reach into the primal mind because the bridge making the connection will have been destroyed. Even though the mind may then still have to come into contact with the preoccupations of the world, its contact will be like that of a bead of water rolling over a lotus leaf. 
So a counterfeit, uh, it's like um, something that is fake, uh, <coughs> like um, uh, say counterfeit money, like a money that is uh, is not sort of issued by the, the mint, but by you know, somebody's who uh, sort of made their own coins, printed their own notes. So that would be counterfeit money. So saying that um, the uh, the clouds are the um, he's referring to as counterfeits. Passing defilements come along and obscure that, that natural radiance. And when he uses the term primal mind, then there's, of course, some debate about exactly what uh, Ajahn Man meant uh, in that. But essentially that's referring to the, the, uh, the, the pure awareness, the, the mind's uh, original nature of being awake and aware. So he uses this term primal mind. And this is a Ajahn Tanisro's translation. His, uh, um, and these were uh, words of Venerable Ajahn Man that he gave in, uh, in um, some Dhamma talks and then noted down by one of the monks who was listening and then published as this little booklet called A Heart Released, Mutodaya. And then next is um, the, one of the senior disciples of Ajahn Man, Ajahn Tate. And this is from his book called only the world ends, and this was translated by Ajahn Jayasaro. If we train this restless mind of ours to experience the tranquility of one-pointedness, we will see that the one-pointed mind exists separately from the defilements, such as anger, and so on. The mind and the defilements are not identical. If they were, purification of mind would be impossible. The mind forges imaginings that harness the defilements to itself, and then becomes unsure as to exactly what is the mind and what is defilement. The Buddha taught the mind is unceasingly radiant. The mind is unceasingly radiant. Defilements are separate entities that enter into it. This saying shows that his teaching on the matter is in fact clear. For the world to be the world, every one of its constituent parts must be present. Its existence depends on them. The only thing that stands by itself is Tamma, the teachings of the Buddha. One who considers Tamma to be manifold or composite has not yet penetrated it thoroughly. Water is in its natural state a pure, transparent fluid, but if dye stuff is added to it, it'll change color accordingly. If red dye is added, it'll turn red. Black dye is added, black. But even though water may change its color in accordance with substances introduced into it, it does not forsake its innate purity and colorlessness. If a wise person is able to distill all the colored water, it'll resume its natural state. The dye stuff can only cause variation in outer appearance. The heart is that which lies at the very center of things and is also formless. It is simple awareness, devoid of movement to and fro, of past and future, of within and without, merit and harm. Wherever the center of a thing lies, there lies its heart, for the word heart means centrality. So this, um, this teaching then is, is uh, used over and over again, there are various different ajans again, um, this is Ajahn Man, Ajahn Tate, uh, Ajahn Chah would uh, refer to this and talking about the mind's innate purity. And uh, in the um, 
in the Thai language, they use a, 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 a string of, of words to talk about nature of mind. Sawang, sa'at, sangok. Sawang means radiant, sa'at means pure, sangok means, means peaceful. And um, when, let's see, we have a, a Venerable Ajahn Chah talking about the, um, of course, I won't be able to find it. <laughs> The, the definition of Buddha Dhamma. Uh, let's see. Well, anyway, I'll, I won't be able to find it when I look for it. But um, Ajahn Chah would say, you know, that uh, the nature of Dhamma is the quali- the qualities of purity, radiance, and peacefulness that are known by the aware mind. That's the, in a sense the the um, the texture of Dhamma or the, the characteristics of the, uh, of, the, of the Dhamma itself, these qualities of purity, radiance and peacefulness, so on, so so that this um, uh, <coughs> this is a a, 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 um, a continual reference point or a, 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 a reference point that's uh, referred to over and over and it's particularly helpful because uh, in the, for for Westerners in particular, because of the uh, conditioning of the, of our minds to the idea of original sin, or that um, that we are, or in the in terms of um, Christianity, uh, I think it was um, Thomas Aquinas who came up with the idea of original sin, and uh, so it's in a sense is a counterpoint to that original sin, or or like in Freudian psychology, you have the what he called the black tide of mud. It's the sort of fundamental nature of our mind, the id, the sort of seething morass of nastiness. But you know, the, the fundamental nature is just the sort of reptile brain of, of wanting, hating, um, <coughs> and uh, selfish you know, impulses. The, I mean, it would have been in German when he wrote it, but it was. I just wonder whether you might say something about uh, the um, relationship. Of the Ajahn Mahabha talked about the radiant mind being the source of. It is because of the radiant mind that delusion arises. That's the next part of the chapter. <laughs> well done, well done, well done. So, but so that the um, there was an interview with the uh, the king of Thailand many years ago with the BBC, and this was a point that he brought up. He said, you know, in the, uh, he was educated in the West. He was uh, he was in. School school in Switzerland and in, in, in the States, so he was very well acquainted with the, the Western thinking. And he said, you know, in the West you talk about um, uh, uh, original sin, but from the Buddhist point of view we talk about original purity, you know, original blessing, original purity. And so it's a, a very different mindset. The, the BBC interviewer was a bit puzzled by that. don't think I like that. <laughs> but... Uh, it's uh, uh, exactly he was what the the king of Thailand was was uh, talking about and, and explaining us that the um, that rather than thinking that the basic nature of us as human beings is 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 impure or sinful or uh, somehow uh, you know bad and wrong, rather the the original nature in uh, in the Buddhist perspective is that quality of, of purity and wholeness and that. The uh, defilements, uh, the kilesa, are things that come along and obscure that. But the fundamental nature of of us as as beings is is rather than being uh, 
uh, sort of sinful and wrong, uh, or bad, or the black tide of mud, uh, is uh, is rather this uh, this quality of original uh, purity, original blessing. So we now come on to Ajahn Mahabur extensively. So. Following these two passages, it seems very fitting to include another set of reflections on the same sutta. This teaching is from Achan Mahabua, bearing in mind also that he is a devoted disciple of Venerable Achan Man and would not dream of contradicting his teacher. For this talk is called The Radiant Mind is Unawareness. This is Achan Tanisaro's translation, so he uses the word unawareness as the translation for avicca or ignorance. And discernment is his translation for panya or wisdom. So this is uh, from the collection of teachings called Straight from the Heart. And there's two long, long quotes from the same, uh, the same teaching that I'll, I'll read out here. So the radiant mind is unawareness. So just when you're thinking, oh yes, our original purity, my mind is intrinsically radiant, then Ajahn Mahabur comes in with a, a sucker punch. So, ha! <laughs> just when you thought you had it... You got it clear. So it's and it's interesting insofar as he seems to be saying the complete opposite of his teacher, who he reveres totally, and both of them are uh, are considered to be arahants, and so um, that uh, that's something to bear in mind, and also to to listen carefully as we go along and how he talks about not not just the radiant mind, but how how the mind sustains uh, uh, unskillful attitudes towards that, or how it becomes a, an obstruction. So the radiant mind is unawareness. We'll see. When the mind is cleansed so that it is fully pure and nothing can become involved with it, that no fear appears in the mind at all. Fear doesn't appear. Courage doesn't appear. All that appears is its own nature by itself. Just its own timeless nature. That's all. This is the genuine mind. Genuine mind, quote-unquote, here refers only to the purity or the sa-upadisesa-nibbana of the arahants. Nothing else can be called the genuine mind, quote-unquote, without reservation or hesitations. I, for one, would feel embarrassed to use the term for anything else at all. The, quote, original mind, unquote, means the original mind of the round in which the mind finds itself spinning around and about, as in the Buddha's saying, monks, the original mind is radiant. Notice that. But because of the admixture of defilements, or because of the defilements which come passing through, it becomes darkened. The original mind here refers to the origin of conventional realities, not to the origin of purity. So he's using the word in a very, very different way. The Buddha uses the term pabasarang, pabasaramidang chitang bhikkave, which means radiant. It doesn't mean pure. The way he puts it is absolutely right. There is no way you can fault it. Had he said that the original mind is pure, you could immediately take issue. If the mind is pure, why is it born? Those who have purified their minds are never reborn. If the mind is already pure, why purify it? Right here is where you could take issue. What reason would there be to purify it? If the mind is radiant, you can purify it because its radiance is unawareness, avicca incarnate. So if the mind is radiant, 
You can purify it because its radiance is unawareness incarnate. It's unawareness, it's ignorance. The radiance is ignorance incarnate. So it's like it's the embodiment of avijja is the radiance. So right there he's saying what seems to be the opposite of what was there in the sutta and his revered teacher. Well, they do here. (laughs) So listen carefully and and perhaps he'll explain. But Ajahn Mahabur, he's a kind of a punchy teacher. He likes to, he uses shock tactics quite regularly. So I imagine when he was saying this, he knew that people are going to be going, what? Huh? That's not, what? Oh, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Because, uh, so he's talking in a way that is, he's both teaching Dhamma and trying to be helpful, but he's talking in a way that is, he's aware that it's uh, going, or sounds counter to familiar teachings or the, the stand, a, a familiar understanding. So he says, Radiance uh, is unawareness incarnate, and nothing else. Meditators will see clearly for themselves the moment the mind passes from radiance to mental release. Radiance will no longer appear. Right here is the point where meditators clearly know this. It's the point that lets them argue, because the truth has to be found true in the individual heart. Once a person knows, he or she can't help but speak with full assurance. Now when the mind is investigated time and again, ceaselessly, relentlessly, it will develop expertise in affairs of the khandhas. The physical khandha, the body, will be the first to be relinquished through discernment, panya. In the beginning stage of the investigation, discernment will see through the physical khandha before seeing through the others and be able to let it go. From there, the mind will gradually be able to let go of vedana, sanya, sankhara and vijnana at the same time. To put the matter simply, once discernment sees through them, it lets go. If it has yet to see through them, it holds on. Once we see through them with discernment, we let them go. We let them go completely. Because we see they are simply ripplings in the mind, blip, 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 without any substance at all. A good thought appears and vanishes. A bad thought appears and vanishes. Whatever kind of thought appears, it's simply a formation, and as such, it vanishes. If a hundred formations appear, all hundred of them vanish. There's no permanence to them, substantial enough for us to trust. So then, what is it that keeps supplying us with these things, or keeps forcing them out on us? What is it that keeps forcing this thing? This, oh sorry, what, what is it that keeps forcing this thing and that out to fool us. This is where we come to what the Buddha calls the Pabhasara Jitta, the original radiant mind. But monks, because of the admixture of defilement, or because of the defilements that come passing through, from sights, sounds, smell, tastes, tactile sensations, from Rupa Vedana, Sanya, Sankara and Vijnana, that our labels and assumptions haul into burnus, the mind becomes defiled. It's defiled with just these very things. Thus, investigation is for the sake of removing these things so as to reveal the mind through clear discernment. We can then see that as long as the mind is at the stage where it hasn't ventured out to become engaged in any object, 
inasmuch as its instruments, the senses, are still weak and undeveloped, it is quiet and radiant, as in the saying, the original mind is the radiant mind. But this is the original mind of the round of rebirth. For example, the mind of a newborn child, whose activities are still too undeveloped to take any objects on fully. It's not the original mind freed from the cycle and fully pure. So, while we investigate around us stage by stage, the symptoms of defilement that used to run all over the place will be gathered into this single point, becoming a radiance within the mind. And this radiance, even the tools of super-mindfulness and super-discernment will, will have to fall for it when they first meet with it, because it's something we've never seen before, never met before, from the beginning of our practice or from the day of our birth. We thus become awed and amazed. It seems for the moment that nothing can compare with it in magnificence. And why shouldn't it be magnificent? It has been the king of the round of rebirth in all three worlds. The world of sensuality, the world of form, and the world of formlessness. Since way back when, for countless eons, it's the one who has wielded power over the mind and ruled the mind all along. As long as the mind doesn't possess the mindfulness and discernment to pull itself out from under this power, how can it not be magnificent? This is why it's been able to drive the mind into experiencing birth on various levels without limit, independence on the fruits of the different actions it has performed under the orders of the ephemeral defilements. The fact that living beings wander and stray, taking birth and dying unceasingly, is because this nature leads them to do so. This being the case, we have to investigate it, so as to see it plainly. Actually, radiance and defilement are two sides of the same coin, because they are both conventional realities. The radiance that comes from the convergence of the various defilements will form a point, a centre, so that we can, we can clearly perceive that. This is the centre of the radiance. When any, when any defilement appears in correspondence with that state or level of the mind, very refined stress will arise in the centre we call radiant. Thus, radiance, defilement and stress, and stress is Ajahn Tanisaro's word for dukkha, the radiance, defilement and stress, all three, are companions. They go together. For this reason, the mind possessing radiance must worry over it, guard it, protect it, maintain it, for fear that something may come and disturb it, jar it, obscure its radiance. Even the most refined adulteration is still an affair of defilement, about which we, as meditators, should not be complacent. We must investigate it with unflagging discernment. In order to cut through the burdens of your concerns once and for all, you should ask yourself, what is this radiance? Fix your attention on it until you know. There's no need to fear that once this radiance is destroyed, the, quote, real you will be destroyed with it. Focus your investigation right at that centre to see clearly that this radiance has the characteristics of inconstancy, stress, and not-self, just like all the other phenomena you have already examined. It's not different in any way, aside from the difference in its subtlety. Thus, nothing should be taken for granted. If anything has the nature of conventional reality, let discernment, panya, slash away at it. Focus right down on the mind itself. All the really counterfeit things lie in the mind. This radiance is the ultimate counterfeit, and at that moment 
It's just the most conspicuous point. Sorry. This radiance is the ultimate counterfeit, and at that moment, it's the most conspicuous point. You hardly want to touch it at all, because you love it and cherish it more than anything else. In the entire body, there is nothing more outstanding than this radiance, which is why you're amazed at it, love it, cherish it, dawdle over it, want nothing to touch it. But it's the enemy king, unawareness, avicca. Have you ever seen it? If you haven't, then when you reach this stage in your practice, you'll fall for it of your own accord. And then you'll know it of your own accord. No one will have to tell you. When mindfulness and discernment are ready, it's called avicca, unawareness. Right here is the true unawareness. Nothing else is true unawareness. Don't go imagining avicca as a tiger, a leopard, a demon or a beast. Actually, it's the most beautiful, most alluring Miss Universe the world has ever seen. Genuine unawareness is very different from what we expect it to be. When we reach genuine unawareness, we don't know what unawareness is, and so we get stuck right there. If there is no one to advise us, no one to suggest an approach, we are sure to be stuck there a long time before we can understand and work ourselves free. But if there is someone to suggest an approach, we can begin to understand it and strike right at that centre, without trusting it, by investigating it in the same way that we have dealt with all other phenomena. Once we have investigated it with sharp discernment, until we know it clearly, this phenomenon will dissolve away in a completely unexpected way. At the same time, you could call it awakening, or closing down the cemeteries of the round of rebirth, the round of the mind, under the shade of the Bodhi tree. Once this phenomenon has dissolved away, something even more amazing, which has been concealed by unawareness, will be revealed in all its fullness. This is what is said to be like the quaking of the cosmos within the heart. This is a very crucial mental moment when the heart breaks away from conventions. This moment when release and conventional reality break away from each other is more awesome than can be expressed. The phrase, quote, the path of arahantship giving way to the, the fruition of arahantship, unquote refers to precisely this mental moment, the moment in which unawareness vanishes. The phrase is, the path of arahantship giving way to the fruition of arahantship. As we are taught, when the path is fully developed, it steps onward to the fruit of arahantship, which is the Dhamma, the mind at its most complete. From that moment on, there are no more problems. The phrase, the one Nibbana, quote-unquote, is fully realized in this heart in the moment unawareness is dissolving. We're taught that this is the moment when the path and the fruition, which are a pair, come together and meet. If we were to make a comparison with climbing the stairs to a house, <coughs> bearing in mind in Thailand you have steps that go up to the, the, the floor of the houses, or off the ground, the house, houses are on stilts in those days. So you climb up the steps and get to the, the floor of your house, you know, uh, having climbed the, the staircase. If we were to make a comparison with climbing the stairs to a house, one foot is on the last step, the other foot is on the floor of the house. We haven't yet reached the house with both feet. When both feet are on the floor of the house, we've, quote, reached the house, unquote. As for the mind, it is said to reach the Dhamma, or to attain the ultimate Dhamma, 
And from the moment of attainment, it's called the one Nibbana. In other words, the mind is completely free. It displays no further activity but the removal of defilement. This is called the one Nibbana. If you want, you can call it the fruition of Arahantship. For at this stage, there are no more defilements to quibble. Or you can call it the one Nibbana. But if you want to give it the conventional label most appropriate to the actual principle, so that nothing is deficient in conventional terms, you have to say the one Nibbana, quote-unquote, so as to be completely fitting with conventional reality and release in the final phase of wiping out the cemeteries of the mind of unawareness. The, uh, yeah, the, the uh, closing down the cemeteries of the round of rebirth, the uh, wiping out of the cemeteries of the mind. So there, there's a few themes in there, and um, that uh, one of the the aspects of his teaching is, in a sense, it's uh, and the, what I mean, it says a few different things to me in reading it, but um, in particular. Um, with this aspect of, of radiance and saying you know, the radiant mind is unawareness. It's like the, um, <clears throat> the when we talk about the characteristics of Dhamma as purity, radiance and peace, it's like the quality of purity or, or peacefulness is on the subject side, so the, the, the kind of attitude side of it. And the radiance is out in the sort of object side. Um, and so that the... One of the, the the things that this is seems to be talking about to me is how the the attention can go to the sort of objective representation, like the the way that that say purity of heart or the peacefulness is sort of manifesting as an experience of brightness, and then the attention goes, ooh, that's so beautiful, that's so bright, and the mind, in a sense, leaves its um, its uh, ground of wakefulness. And is getting absorbed into the the tone or the 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 kind of emotional um, delight that comes with that quality of radiance. So that uh, in that um, say worshiping or revering or, or, or delighting in that radiant quality, then the mind is is slipping into a a, a subject object duality. There's that that which is so beautiful, that which is so bright, that which is so pure and good. And um, and so then the, the kind of language he's using here also it's one interesting that in Buddhist mythology you have you don't just have one Mara you have uh, Mara is sort of the embodiment of delusion and is the sort of uh, uh, the kind of Satan figure of um, the uh, uh, the Pali Canon you have you don't have just one Mara you have five Maras and uh, <clears throat> so and each of the five Maras is associated with one of the five Khandas. So the first Mara is called Machumara, or Mara the killer. Now the second one, uh, so that's related to the, the body, uh, Rupakanda. And then the second one is uh, Kilesa Mara, which is uh, to do with feeling, Vedana. And that's uh, uh, the, to do with defilement, Mara embodied in the defilements. Then the third one is Kanda Mara, which is um, the... Uh, uh, Mara as the identification with the body and the personality the, and the, the khandas. The fourth one is Abhisankara Mara, which means uh, uh, thinking. Mara, which is embodied in the realm of thinking, like the, the mind that believes 
our thoughts. And, uh, but the fifth one, which is so relevant to this, is called Devaputa Mara. And uh, so the Mara as in the, sort of the king of the Devas. And so rather like you have Lucifer in the uh, biblical mythology, uh, that was the brightest of the archangels who wanted to compete with God and got chucked down to the, the lower levels. Um, in this, uh, the fifth Mara, the Devaputa Mara, is uh, the king of the Paranimita Vasavati heavens. So that's the highest of the seven heavens, of the Kamaloka, of the sensual world. Before you get into the Brahma world, so Mara is the ruler of that, uh, he's like the, the boss deva of that, uh, the highest deva realm of the, of the sense world. So it's a very, very refined being, but it's like the, rather like Lucifer, like uh, Mara is sort of convinced of, uh, that Mara is convinced of its own glory and wonderfulness and is, uh, the, quote unquote, the ruler of the sense world, the sense sphere. And so that uh, the, this kind of um, embodiment of uh, radiance as ignorance, uh, as avijja here, it matches very closely that um, Mara as the sort of the, the brightest of the devas of the sense world. So you have, um, you know, the uh, above the when we do the Dhammajaka Sutta, we recite the different names of the heavens. You have the uh, the heaven of, of the the Bhuma devas, the earth spirits, and then the heaven of the four kings. Then you have the heaven of the 33 gods, then you have the Yama heaven, the Tusita heaven, the heaven of the those who delight in creating, and then the Paranimita Vasavati heaven is the heaven of those who delight in the creations of others. So Mara is the king of that heaven of those who delight in the creation of others. And above that is the Brahma world. So this in, the, in Buddhist mythology you have Deva Putamara is the king of that Paranimita Vasavati heaven. So it's a very, very bright being. And if uh, one was to experience the presence of a you know, Deva like that, you go, wow, so bright, so powerful, like way above Indra. You know, Indra's down in the Tavatinsa heaven. It's like, this is the, sort of the, the highest, the most powerful, all Devas before you get into the Brahma realm. So uh, that's what also comes through this, this kind of pages that uh, you know, we get impressed by a bright light. Wow, look at that. <laughs> Even like the beautiful bright spring day. Wow, sunshine. Luminous daffodils. Wow. That uh, the, the mind gets entranced, gets bedazzled by, uh, by radiance. So I feel that some of the things that he's talking about here is that uh, bedazzlement, being uh, sort of swept away by that. And as he says, when, the, when there's a letting go of that uh, in being bedazzled, entranced, enchanted with that radiance, then he says, um, once this phenomenon has dissolved away, something even more amazing, which has been concealed by unawareness, will be revealed in all its fullness. But also he doesn't, he doesn't speak about that which is revealed in, uh, in terms of a, a sensory experience or even a, a mood or a tone. It's just that, that it's not uh, outside of the, the realm of of awareness is that kind of the, the uh, awake mind knowing its own nature and uh, <clears throat> so it doesn't manifest in any particular sensory form like uh, uh, and he's, he's, he doesn't talk about it in terms of an even brighter radiance he doesn't, he doesn't say that but it's all in the, the form of a, a clarity of, uh, of knowing <clears throat> when the heart breaks away from conventions 
This moment when release and conventional reality break away from each other is more awesome than can be expressed. So that the, the, the mind that is aware knows that without any, any doubt or any delusion, any kind of distortion whatsoever, oh, that's, this is just the, the realm of perceptions, that's all. And this is the uh, awareness. And then the, the felt sense of that, he calls that, you know, this is the one Nibbana. So when the mind has that, uh, that fundamental breakthrough and realization, then this is the, uh, the synonymous with the experience of Nibbana. So just to finish the, uh, the chapter then, it's an oft-remarked upon fact that the teachings of different masters sometimes seem to contradict each other. Even those of the same teacher, on occasion. So Ajahn Chah was famous for contradicting himself. Sometimes even in the same Dhamma talk. The last advice he gave me, uh, I've often mentioned, was um, in the space of 20 minutes, because I just had got a telegram from England saying my father had a heart attack. And could I come back to England? So he said, in the space of 20 minutes, with no change of expression on his face, go to England, pay respect, you know, take care of your business with your family, pay respects to Ajahn Sumedho, then come straight back to Thailand. Instruction number one. Instruction number two was go to England, spend the time with you need to with your family, go and pay respects to Ajahn Sumedho, and then <clears throat> stay with him for a year, and after a year, come back to Thailand. Instruction number three, go to England, spend time with your family, uh, after your family business is finished, go pay respects to Ajahn Sumedho, stay with him, and if, if things are really desperate, then you can come back to Thailand if you really have to. <laughs> Instruction number four is go to England, spend time with your family, pay respects to Ajahn Sumedho, don't come back. <laughs> and that was all delivered with exactly the same expression within 20 minutes. So it's like, okay, here are your instructions, follow them to the letter. You know. Yeah, it was just like, okay, this is your instructions, do it. So, in, in essentially, it's like, okay, well, you figure it out. <laughs> so, uh, teachings of different masters sometimes seem to contradict each other, even those of the same teacher on occasion. These passages from this famous discourse of Ajahn Mahabur are included not to be contradictory, but rather to help the reader develop a more reflective and investigative appreciation of these teachings on radiance. What he points to here is the danger of subtle forms of identification and attachment, even to seemingly pure qualities such as radiance. It's only by repeated contemplation and exploration through meditation practice that we can awaken to the fundamental truth of the matter. To round things off for this chapter, concluding this section of the book and leading us to the final division on cultivation and fruition, here are some words of Ajahn Chah that encompass the themes that we have been looking at. And this is from uh, Food for the Heart. About this mind, in truth, there is nothing really wrong with it. It is intrinsically pure. Within itself, it's already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to it. It's simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it 
into happiness, suffering, gladness and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of those things. That gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. Then we think that it is, that it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. But really, this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful. Really peaceful. Just like a leaf which is still as long as no wind blows. If a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering is due to those sense impressions. The mind follows them. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. If we know fully the true nature of sense impressions, we will be unmoved. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. We must train the mind to know those sense impressions and not get lost in them, to make it peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. We must train the mind to know those sense impressions and not get lost in them, to make it peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. And that is the end of the terrain. Any questions, thoughts, further reflections, rejections? <laughs> Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. Just to know sense impressions, that's all. Just, just is a really, really big word. <laughs> it's the, one of the, the largest words written with four letters that exists in the English language. Just one more. Just, just a bite. Just, just, just a moment. Uh, like uh, when I, when I feel stuck, like doing uh, a practice, it's it's when I think that uh, so my direction is liberation. Like, uh, like when I do the practice, when I think I'm doing my practice myself, like like uh, the ideas itself, is to me. It's completely different, the opposite, where I'm, where I think I'm heading. So sometimes it's really contradictory. That, that's when I feel really stuck. Like I'm, when I'm doing the meditation, I think, okay, this is for like a liberation of my heart, liberation from like my self identity or self ideas. But underneath, I'm kind of re reinforcing myself. <laughs> well, the very fact that you can recognize that's going on 
is, is very significant. Most people wouldn't recognize that. The, the, the very fact that the, the mind can see that you know, there's the wisdom, you know, mindfulness and wisdom recognizes, oh, look at that. There's this really strong sense of me who's practicing, me who's getting somewhere or me who's not getting anywhere. Look at that. The mind that knows that feeling of me who's practicing or me who's doing or me who's much bigger than used to be, that the mind that knows the me is not the me. So that that um, the the capacity to see that happening, to see the, the, those reactions of I like, I don't like, it's like that's like the leaf that is not fluttering. And or and the, it, uh, there's the awareness that that oh look the mind really is really was pleased by that or was upset by that look at that the mind that knows being upset is not upset the mind that knows agitation is not agitated so that the the agitation might still be there but the the why it's practiced rather than sort of instantaneous total liberation like because there's a there's a um, a process it takes time to 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 let the oil and the water separate out from each other but the just that simple principle of you know, that which knows agitation is not agitated that which knows the feeling of self is not self and then you can use simple reflect I, I like to use simple reflections i i use a lot in, in my meditation so to, <clears throat> To take a little phrase like, it's not me realizing the Dhamma, it's the Dhamma realizing the me. A little kind of nugget. And just sit on that for a week. You just, just take a little statement. I mean, you can make up your own, whatever's meaningful. But the, So when I, 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 th I think that phrase, or bring that to mind, something goes, oh. <laughs> and it, there's a, 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 a loosening of the self-creating habit it's not me realizing the, the dhamma it's the dhamma realizing the me oh and just to uh, you, and, you know you can change the wording or you know, um, adjust and adapt as, as you feel but that kind of uh, investigation or reflection I find really helpful I mean my, the way my mind works just to sort of drop that in as a counterpoint to the uh, what the mind is assuming to be true, I'm practicing, I'm feeling, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm explaining. <laughs> but uh, it's uh, it just gives a different perspective on that. And there's also because it's a process; it's not just a, an instantaneous transformation. It's a process. Therefore, patience is incredibly important. That it's just patiently applying that same kind of change of perspective and over and over and over and over again. For the last like a January, February, March until this time, like two weeks left until the end of the winter retreat, I'm just full of myself. It's completely the opposite of my like my ideal. But the fact that you could, but you're, you're saying that you, I mean, the fact that you're saying that, you see, other people are not even saying that. 
they haven't even seen that. So the, the, the but seriously, the the very fact that you can recognize, wow, I'm just full of me. This is this is outrageous. That there's probably a few people here thinking, oh, it's never even occurred. <laughs> they're so full of me, there isn't any room for noticing that they're full of me. So it's it's not a small thing. That uh, uh, in a way, it's like the the anesthetic wearing off. Well, like if you ever saw the movie The Matrix, it's like, do you want the red pill or the blue pill? Do you want to wake up from the illusion or do you want to keep the illusion going? It's like, well, uh, I'd like the I'd, I'd like to wake up from the illusion. It's like, well, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> because once you see uh, once you see what what's actually happening, it's going to be grim. And so that that uh, that's the the experience of my goodness, this ego is gigantic. It's just like everywhere. It's like you know, the, taking the red pill. Like, gee, we're all in little kind of flotation tanks with tubes sticking out of our heads, and and uh, this is what we thought was freedom in the world. Gee, that's a nightmare. But at least you know that's what's going on. You know, you know that's the reality. It's like uh, if you are. Um, you're going on a, a hike through the through the the, the countryside, and you, you see where you're going on the map, and then you, you come around the corner, and there's this hill. When, when I was with Lumpur Sumedho in the, in Bhutan, the, literally sort of got off the plane, and think, oh, let, we'll uh, we'll take you to visit the tiger's nest today, you know, before we set off on our journey. And oh, that's very nice. And didn't really comprehend what the tiger's nest was, and there's this marvelous photograph of Edward Lewis. I think it was about 70 at the time that we, we did this, this trip together, as he sort of came around the corner and we saw the tiger's nest is up on the cliff, like there. And there's this sort of, this, this expression on his face, like, <laughs> we're going there. <laughs> I mean, we all felt that, but it was like, it was just sort of captured. Like, but at least, you know, oh, that's, that's what we've got ahead of us. That's a big climb. Okay, buckle up. <laughs> but... Uh, so it's it's better to I would say it's better to to be aware of that and to know the nature of the task rather than to not know it. And so that uh, I, I would, wouldn't think of it as something that needs to cause despair, but rather it's more like okay, now we can be realistic. This is this is a job we've got on here. Okay, yeah, and then it's like recognizing that the task that's in hand. Okay, that's enough for today. We have evening puja at seven thirty today, so let's wrap it up. Sadhana.